Hey, welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cotrera Show. It's Wednesday, January 6th. If you know anybody who is pregnant or breastfeeding, this might be of interest to you. Ontario's OBGYNs are pushing back on policies that are advising against COVID-19 vaccines for that group of women. And we're also going to talk about the UK variant of COVID-19 that they found three cases of here in Ontario. How dangerous and how contagious is it and how much of a game changer is it when it comes to our fight against COVID-19? We'll speak with Amir Adaran about that. But let's start off attacking hockey. One of the repercussions from the coronavirus pandemic is the fact that uh, the NHL, they can't have uh, fans in the in the stands anymore. So they've entered into brand partnerships on uh, four new division names for this year's 56-game season. Our division is going to be the Scotia NHL North Division. Here to talk about uh, the sponsorship deals and how important they are uh, for this season uh, where our uh, national sport is concerned and the NHL in general. Mike Leon, he's president of Brand Heroes Marketing. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thanks, Kelly. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thanks for joining us. Now, I understand... Uh, that, you know, we're used to, we're used to seeing sponsorship on, uh, on the board, on ice surfaces, scoreboards. It seems like everywhere you look around, you see a logo here and there that has nothing to do with hockey. Um, but this season, we're going to see logos that will appear on players' helmets. Uh, thoughts on that? <laughs> you know what? I mean, I think it's logical, especially for a league like the NHL that is, you know, is so well branded and you're used to seeing so much sponsorship. I guess the question kind of becomes, you know, at what point does it all just become noise? Like from a sponsorship perspective, you want to be seen and you pay that kind of money because you want people to see it and you want people to interact with it. But if you have a bunch of different logos on the helmets of people moving super fast, is that going to happen or is this just one of those keeping up with the Jones scenarios that it just looks kind of good to be sponsoring a helmet because, you know, everybody else is. Right. And there's space. I mean, that is really, uh, I mean, it was just aching to be branded those helmets. Uh, Can you give us an idea of the the size, if you know, of uh, the global spend on sports sponsorships in general? Like how big a business is this? Oh, it's a billion dollar industry. I mean, I couldn't tell you the exact amount, but I know that it's, it's such a huge industry. And the thing is now is like sponsorship is very much an experience. And, you know, what a lot of sports franchises do really well with sponsorship is they don't just sell the ability to, to plant your logo somewhere, but there's a really great way to actually get involved in the game itself. And, you know, the Jays are quite adept at this and you know the nhl is quite adept at this so this kind of becomes another option but i think you know what i find interesting about this announcement in general is that you know it's also being touted by the league as a necessity because people aren't going to the game so you know to keep food on the table as they put it and to keep uh, the league moving forward they've got to do that Personally, I feel like once you start selling this stuff, you're never going to stop. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. It's not like we're going to see clean helmets again, are we? Never, never. You know what? If if sponsors are buying into this, which I think they will, and, you know, the ability to also sponsor a division too, which is contentious for a lot of reasons, and I think that's a totally different story, but, you know, people will pay that. And once they pay, why on earth would a league ever walk that back and suddenly say, you know what, pandemic's over, we're good. Yeah, the logo could, uh, you could be right, the logo on the helmet might get lost, but in those stills, that's going to become extremely important for brand um, br- brand recognition. Can you tell us why a, a brand, it, their most valuable asset is their logo? 
Well, you know what? Logos and, and, you know, all sorts of elements like that, like, you know, colors and type and all of that, I really kind of compare that because brands are like people, right? You know, brands have personalities, they have values. And, you know, just like people, people express those values and personalities through a lot of different ways. And clothes is one of those ways, what they wear, their hairstyle, all that sort of stuff. And, you know, logos are often the clothes of the brand. They're not the brand themselves, but they are really what helps send the message about who that brand is. So, you know, people identify with it. And a logo like the NHL and, and, you know, and NHL team logos have such deep attachment to people. Like you see people tattooing it. So it's, it's so deep and it's so personal that brands want in on that. They want that kind of affinity. They want to be a part of it. And I'm not necessarily saying that Tide's going to expect that somebody's going to, you know, tattoo their logo on their arm or something, but it's nice to be a part of that kind of exposure. So it, it makes a ton of sense and the logo makes a ton of sense. Yeah, I was reading that the logos actually will allow these these brands that have sponsored the NHL to access their uh, target audience on multiple platforms because they can reach them, you know, via the the normal method of viewing, you know, like a hockey game on TV. But you can also uh, reach people through sharing on social media, and that you can find out your return on investment through AI. Like they they've come up with ways that AI could be used to measure how many people's eyeballs are on that uh, that logo. Yeah, for sure. You know what? You're right. Like, it's slick, and there's a lot of different ways to measure it. I think, though, you know, and not to be a party pooper on it, because, you know, as a brand guy, I mean, I love, I love creating different ways for brands to interact with consumers. But I think we also have to look at this from the fan experience standpoint. You know, why is the fan watching a game in the first place? And any part of that experience that the brand shows up in needs to really answer that question. If, you know, if, if they're not there to enhance that experience for the fan, then really they're distracting the fan from it. And at that point, that almost becomes like the YouTube video where people just try and click past the ad as quickly as they possibly can. That's the big problem sometimes with, with that sponsorship needs to really be aware of that. It has to it has to enhance that fan experience. It can't distract them from it. But isn't this a quieter way to do that than, you know, breaking in with a, a Scotia Bank uh, you know, image in the middle of the broadcast? You just have it on the helmet? <laughs> you know what, possibly. And you know, it's and I'm I'm definitely not a psychologist, but I think there's something to be said for the power of subliminal messaging. You know, like if you see something so many different times in so many different subtle ways, it's gonna start playing into the background. You know, it's like it's the same reason why, you know, we'll see an ad or we'll hear a song and suddenly we're just humming that song 15 times throughout the day. So, I, I think yeah. And thinking of the laundry detergent that we first heard the song uh, represent on their commercial, <laughs> exactly. depending on how old you are, really, that yeah. that's, you know, I, I can't think of a, a tune off the top of my head, but I know I was talking about this with Chris the other day. There's something I, I had not heard the tune, but I was familiar with it from a commercial. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, you know what? We've been doing that like with my kids, like, you know, the Smarties theme from the 80s or the Kit Kat, give me a break theme. And uh, yeah, no, you're totally right. So it, it does, all that stuff kind of contributes. The more that a brand shows up, the more people are going to think about it. And the more they think about it, the more it's going to come to mind when they're ready to buy. So uh, some fans feel like sponsoring of the division names may be a step too far. Could this backfire at all? Or, or is the the fact that we're going to see hockey reason enough to have uh, sponsorships. 
So that one concerns me a little bit because I feel like, you know, there's certain things that are sacred. And, you know, I, as a traditionalist, I, I certainly believe in like the sanctity of some some aspects being brand free. And like so often, what? Well, maybe I know I'm putting you in the spot, but really <laughs> what? Quite possibly division names. I mean, Subways, you know, that's another one. And I mean, I know, you know, they're, they're brand Subways, but I just feel like there's certain things that the experience has to live on its own. Uh, because again, right, like if you're sponsoring something, you want to enhance the experience, not distract it. So, you know, you want to be able to like experience the game in its purest form. And I know I sound like a purist, but you know, I'm a big, big hockey guy. And I think I, my concern about this is that it's just going to feel like the brand is just showing up at a party that it's not welcome to. And I think if it's done wrong, that can actually hurt the brand long term. I don't know if it will, but it just that's my one concern that I'm a bit iffy on on the whole division sponsorship. You know, I'm just waiting till we reach a point in time where, you know, everybody's got those random tattoos on their arms and things like that. You know, it, it used to be sleeves, but now it's not anymore. It's just random black and white tattoos <laughs> that we see, uh, you know, brands offering a lot of money to to uh, sports figures to, you know, literally put the logo on their skin, wear it around 24-7. <laughs> Oh, you never know. You never know. But, you know, it's it's funny because there are brands that have achieved that iconic status that people will tattoo on their own without, you know, so much as being paid a penny. And Iron Man is a great example of that because there's athletes that have Iron Man tattoos uh, and, and it's a badge of pride for them. They earn their right into there and they want to they want to show the world that they're a part of it. So once you sort of reach that status then, you know, you get to that level where you don't even necessarily have to pay for it. That's, you know, that's the holy grail right there. Just reading that our next guest says this variant of COVID-19 from the UK is a 2021 nightmare. Here to talk about what he means by that is Amir Adaran. He's a law professor and immunologist at the University of Ottawa and friend of the show. Welcome to it, Amir. Good to have you on again. Hi, Kelly. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. Before we get into why this variant is a 2021 nightmare, what exactly do we know about this mutated strain and why is it, uh, you know, such a concerning strain? So, so the virus mutates all the time. It's happened thousands of times. You mostly never hear about it. But there is a strain of virus which contains several mutations together that was discovered in England. And it is clearly much, much more dangerous than the quote-unquote friendly virus. Can I call it that? Mm. That we've had before. That's generous. Yeah, I mean, this one is much worse. It is between 40 and 70 percent better at transmitting. That is to say, you know, 40 to 70 percent better at infecting people than the previous version. And can I ask you, because I want to break in when I have a a quick question about it, because I think if I have a question, somebody else probably does to what you've just said. Does that mean it's more contagious through droplets or could it be more contagious through fomite? I know that we've all, you know, stopped wiping, majority of us have stopped wiping our groceries down again. Are we going to have to start doing that again? I've not. It hasn't really occurred to me that that is likely how it's spread. But for sure, it is more contagious through the air, not just droplets, but especially aerosols, which are very, very tiny droplets that can travel more than the two meters. You have to 
worry about a virus that's 40 to 70 percent more transmissible. Why? Because look at Ontario right now. In fact, look at most of the country. We have some pretty tough restrictions in Ontario, not the toughest. And with those restrictions, we're just treading water. You know, cases aren't exploding, but they're not going down either. They're more or less plateaued around 3,000 a day. If you throw on to that plateau a virus that is 40 to sorry 40 to 70 percent better at transmitting, you're no longer on a plateau. You start climbing again, and you start climbing very, very sharply. So the only way to fight this thing is to toughen the restrictions we've got. And I hate saying that. I don't like it. It makes me miserable. I'm heartbroken. I, I, I just don't have when, the words for how much is When you say t- toughen the restrictions that we're under right now, there, I've been reading it over the past couple of days, some uh, experts that are saying, you know, it's not really a lockdown that we're experiencing right now when kids are going to be going back to school in a week. Are you telling us that we should be uh, looking forward to, you know, uh, and when I say looking forward to, not like, yeah, I'm looking forward to this, but it, it, what is waiting for us if this if this vi- uh, variant starts to uh, climb as far as cases go, uh, we could be looking at a lockdown like Britain, no school, nothing like that. We should be doing that right now. I, I mean, we shouldn't wait for this to get worse, right? Because... The higher you climb in cases before you bring on a lockdown, the longer that lockdown needs to be. So, you know, you just postpone it a week or so, and you might be in exchange getting several extra weeks of lockdown. It's not worth it, right? You have to lock down as soon as you have cause for alarm. And we have cause by the bucketful right now. We're already at an all-time peak of cases. And we know that there is a new virus circulating in Ontario that is much more efficient, really to say nasty, than the virus we're accustomed to. Okay, Amir, this this um, showed up, this variant showed up in the UK, the one that you're talking about, that's 40 to 70 times per, uh, more um, contagious than the... 40 to 70 percent. 40 to percent, sorry. Uh, more contagious than the COVID-19 strain that we're dealing with right now and is a possible uh, nightmare for, for you know, the months ahead. If we knew that in September, what do you make of elected officials and the head, uh, the CEO of, of several uh, Ontario hospitals heading down to a little holiday in the uh, sunnier resort places? Look, so, you know, the one CEO, hospital CEO who, who did this, undoubtedly, in my mind, should lose his job. Because as a, as a healthcare care leader, you're either on the side of health or you aren't, and his actions place him on the wrong side. Um, it, it's deplorable. You know, people can travel when it's essential. We shouldn't demonize all travel. I mean, but taking a vacation in the sun right now it's just the wrong thing to do. If several countries are investigating or authorizing a delay of second doses because they want to get more people vaccinated with the first doses, I hear that Pfizer is not too happy about it. 
and they have been uh, calling, you know, several places out on this. What's your opinion? Should we be looking at, um, you know, doing this on mass, getting more people vaccinated with the hopes that, okay, maybe the efficacy is only 50%, but it's better than 0% in most of the population? It's a very tough decision. And, and I'm on the fence about it. If we were to use all the doses that we get to give everyone a single shot, not the two shots that is the standard, we would end up with some people being very immune and some people being little immune and most of them in the muddy middle with some immunity but not a whole lot. That might help reduce the disease for a short time, but it does something which I think is quite dangerous. It also makes it easier for the virus to evolve new mutations. Interesting. And this time, those mutations will be the ones that defeat the vaccine. So it is a very dangerous game to play. You do, of course, by vaccinating people with one jab instead of two, cover more people with some, not all, but some protection sooner. But you also hand the virus a tremendous opportunity to evolve and get around the vaccine totally. And then where does that leave you? Mm -hmm. We're in... um myself, I'm, I'm in a lower category as far as uh, I'm not going to be vaccinated anytime soon based on my age. But someone else I work with will probably be vaccinated much later because they are a millennial. I'm a Gen Xer. So with that in mind, we were having this discussion about the fact that uh, he's pretty certain that, you know, there'll be herd immunity by the time they get around to vaccinating him in September. What are your thoughts on that? Like, what do you say to the average person that's theorizing on on, on how her, herd immunity works and this COVID vaccine and virus? Well, look, you know, I have a PhD in this stuff. And I spent a lot of years learning this stuff. And I can't make that prediction that your friend has made. I, I just can't say what's going to happen in September. What I know for sure is that with a new strain of virus that is 40 to 70 percent more transmissible, guess what? The threshold needed for herd immunity just went up a lot because this is a, a more aggressive virus. So more of us need to be vaccinated than we believe true only a short while ago. Oh, really? So, like, see, I would not have guessed that, that it would throw the percentage up. I thought, well, if the vaccination works, if the vaccine works, the percentage would stay the same. That's not accurate? Like, what percentage level would we have to get up to then? I haven't done the math on this, but it's going to be above 80%. Come on. You know, it's it's going to be high. um, And we're going to have to simply reach it. Are we going to reach it by September? That's what your friend is saying. I don't know. That depends on how many doses of vaccine we get between now and September and how many of us choose to get the vaccine, how many of us volunteer for that. So, you know, there's a lot of speculation in what your friend is saying. I'd love it to be true. I just don't know that it is true. 
want to ask you one more question before I let you go, and that is about snowbirds who are flying south because apparently uh, they're able to, if they can show that they own a property or a hydro bill or something like that for a condo in Florida, get uh, their vaccine if they're over the age of 65. Is that something that, you know, is recommendable? Tough ethical call, isn't it, right? Because they're going essentially for vacation reasons, um, and that would not be allowed. It's supposed to be essential travel only. But what if their essential incentive is getting that vaccine? Because they're not going to get it if they're 60 you know, six until farther on down the uh, year, the rollout. As long as they go and get vaccinated and do not come back before getting the second inoculation, they wouldn't likely be bringing disease into Canada. But of course, the government is going to have to formalize some guidance around this. And they Mm -hmm. haven't done that yet. What do you mean by they most likely wouldn't be bringing disease, sorry, Amir, into Canada? Because I have heard that you could still, you could be vaccinated and not show any signs, but carry, possibly carry COVID still and, and shed it because you're, uh, you're immune, but you're just now asymptomatic. Is that something that's, uh, I know I'm asking you all these questions, lobbing different questions at you, but these are just things that I've read and I know I'm not alone with that. No, they're great questions, Kelly. I'm glad you're doing it. Um, look, the vaccine needs two jabs, as, as you've said, and they're typically spaced three or three weeks or four weeks, a month apart, something like that. You could get your first jab and at that very same moment be infected with the virus, and the vaccine isn't going to do anything for you if you get infected just before, just after, getting the first jab. Why? Because the vaccine hasn't really taken effect in your body yet, right? But by the time you get the second dose, three weeks or a month later, yes, you should have some immunity. And at that point, it would be exceedingly unlikely that a person who's had both inoculations would pick up the virus and be infectious to somebody else. Possible, but very, very unlikely. So, Amir, here we are staring down the uh, barrel of this variant that is far more contagious than the COVID-19 strain that we're used to. We're exhausted. We have COVID fatigue. We keep hearing about elected officials resigning from positions because they've traveled and when we're being told not to travel. What do you think it's going to take for people to actually invite a lockdown because you know i think we're all really tired and and really embrace a lockdown i don't think anyone wants it i mean of course nobody wants it but what's our choice we're in a race there's a race between how quickly this new variant becomes prevalent in our community in which case just you know the amount of cases you have today, the wave you have today, you ain't seen nothing yet. That's one possible outcome of the race. The other is we lock down, we shelter ourselves for the few months it will take for Canada to acquire enough vaccine to cover us. It's a race between that variant virus and our ability to buy and use enough vaccine. One outcome of that race, you live. The other outcome of that race, 
many die. It, it's as simple as that. Well, Amir, I'm going to leave it at that. Uh, we'll, we'll punctuate what you're saying about this nightmare scenario with with uh, how you ended. And, and thank you for your time. As always, it's it's really informative when I get you on the line because I think uh, I'm able to ask you some of the questions that are just outstanding. You know, we, we're inundated with so much information and sometimes it just takes some simple questions to clear it up in our minds. Thanks so much. Kelly, thanks so much. Stay safe, please. Ontario's OBGYNs are pushing back on policies advising against COVID-19 vaccine for pregnant or breastfeeding women. Um, we wanted to reach out and find a little bit more about uh, why they're pushing back. So joining the show is Dr. Connie Nacello. She's president of the Ontario Society of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Welcome to the show, doctor. Thank you, Kelly. Okay, so why exactly did the province... Um, s- you know, advise against COVID-19 vaccines for pregnant or breastfeeding women, because I know that pregnant women are at high risk of contracting uh, COVID-19. Absolutely. And uh, so I think they were just following what uh, the National Advisory Committee on Immunization had said about the COVID vaccines, which basically said not tested in pregnant women or lactating women, um, shouldn't use it, but then in the next breath, they said, but should uh, women decide to use it, it can be used. <laughs> okay, so some contradictory um, so, information. Does it sound absolutely. like they're trying to save themselves from potential, you know, lawsuits? Oh, well, that's always a concern. <laughs> right. Sadly, in medicine. It, we, we don't like to get things wrong either. So uh, being abundantly overcautious is likely what has been going on. Um, but what's been happening, so there is, the drug was not tested in pregnant or lactating women. But the caveat is no drugs or vaccines have ever been tested in pregnant or lactating women. They exclude the uh, exclude pregnant women from all drug trials. And Is that because of ethical years. ethical reasons? Uh, well, could be ethical, could be medical legal. Uh, okay. But the reality is, uh, you know, they don't like they don't want to contaminate their results by hormonal fluctuations. Interesting. Yeah. Well, uh, until very recent, yeah, like past two thousand, we still were seeing. Uh, drugs that were hitting the market that were being used by women but only tested on men. So this is not new to us. And in fact, you know, when it comes to medication pregnancy and vaccination in pregnancy, we actually have to figure it out for ourselves using our best science-informed judgment because there isn't evidence at that point. And so uh, what we would, uh, the uh, societies of OBGYN in North America have done, all the, they're all in agreement, SOGC, uh, they're the Society of OBGYN of Canada, the American College of OBGYN, the Society of uh, Maternal Fetal Medicine, and uh, uh, CANSAGE, which is a Canadian uh, group, and uh, uh, you name it, all of them. <laughs> came out with a uh, consensus statement about uh, mid-December, and uh, uh, the consensus was that it could be used in uh, pregnancy and that at-risk women for COVID-19 should uh, or could, with informed consent, decide to use the vaccine. 
Um, but as part of that, we also are pushing for a follow-up for these women that have been vaccinated. Okay. Now, the, the U.S. is a little bit ahead of the game, and the University of Washington has already set up a uh, voluntary uh, uh, participation uh, follow-up program uh, for women that have been vaccinated. So if you're pregnant, breastfeeding, uh, and you reach out to your doctor with this, uh, you know, the push from the OBGYNs across Canada, but you still have the uh, the government saying, well, it's not advisable for pregnant or breastfeeding women to get the COVID-19 vaccine. What What's the average person likely to hear from their family doctor? Uh, from their family doctor, they're likely to uh, hear, well, not recommended in pregnancy. I mean, we're as guilty as anybody else of looking at news bites. But the reality is the the evidence is still emerging. Um, and so we probably have so, several hundred women that have been vaccinated uh, during pregnancy in the States, most of them healthcare workers. Um, and so that's going to be a cohort that's going to be leading the way as far as information uh, about pregnancy, about delivery, about lactation, about newborns. Uh, and uh, the SOGC guidelines are in absolute agreement with them. Okay, so are we hoping for a reversal on that, uh, that the recommendations from the government that women that are breastfeeding or um, lactating avoid the COVID-19 vaccine? Is that the end goal? Or are we just hoping to get the word out to women to, you know, make the decision for themselves and that the risk of COVID-19 could be worse than actually receiving a vaccine? Both, um, but I'm happy to unofficially report. I don't believe they have officially reached, uh, released it, uh, but apparently last night the uh, 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 Chief Medical Officer of Health Office and the Vaccine uh, Task Force changed the recommendations for pregnancy, lactation, and uh, um, immune suppression. And uh, they, now the... Um, the guideline uh, should be that it is allowed and women that uh, choose to get the vaccine should have counseling from their primary care provider. Well, I guess congratulations is due and thank you very yeah. much for breaking that news on our show. It's good to know. Uh, so you heard it here first on 640 Toronto. I, I want to uh, ask you in closing where women should be uh, that are pregnant and breastfeeding when it comes to the vaccine strategy of the rollout. You know, where do you think they should end up? Well, I think that uh, we actually have a cohort of pregnant women out there because most health frontline healthcare workers are women. Um, and that is in the hospitals, in the long-term care homes, um, at all levels. But we also have another cohort of essential workers, some of whom uh, may be pregnant, certainly a lot of them in the reproductive age group. Um, and uh, so that, that would be where uh, we would focus some of our attention because we know that these women are at risk. Right. So they could, they're already in, uh, in frontline positions. So odds are they're going to be getting the vaccine, uh, one of, during this first stage of the rollout. Dr. Nacello, congratulations and thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time today. All right. Thanks very much. Have a great day. Hey, thanks for tuning into the podcast. Always good to have you along. Have yourself a brilliant Wednesday.